You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast. Uh, this is Jordan Schrader hosting this week with Will Doran and Colin Campbell. Uh, we're coming to you late in the evening on Friday after uh, the conclusion of a uh, very unusual special session. Uh, We are waiting to see what Governor McCrory does, uh, but the legislature over uh, about three days passed uh, a a series of uh, big changes to state government, and uh, that's what we'll talk about for the whole Domecast today. Uh, So Colin, uh, start us off. Uh, How did this all come about? And uh, how did a special session that was supposed to be about uh, disaster relief this week uh, turn into something else? Yeah, so we knew, I think, initially that there was a a decent chance that the special session on disaster relief might do more than disaster relief. When Governor McCrory issued his proclamation creating the special session, uh, he included a line that said any other matters that the legislature wants to address. So he left the agenda open-ended. So we all thought going into the week when the— legislature came back to town on Tuesday uh, that we were looking at a a single special session uh, and they would do a disaster relief bill and we thought maybe they might add some other provisions to that or or perhaps even do a little bit uh, of other legislation. Uh, They ended up getting through all of Tuesday and the first uh, few hours of uh, Wednesday doing nothing but disaster relief, just as uh, as promised, of uh, putting some funding towards uh, the victims of Hurricane Matthew flooding and also the uh, Western North Carolina wildfires. And then right about noon on Wednesday, we got a surprise. Um, the Speaker of the House and the Senate Leader, Phil Berger, both at the almost the exact same time announced that uh, they were in receipt of a petition from all of the Republican lawmakers who constitute three-fifths, I believe, of the uh, members in both chambers that they wanted a additional special session. And that special session was going to start in only two hours from the time at which they announced that they were going to do it. And uh, Democrats were taken by surprise by that. They thought they were going home or would be going home relatively soon um, and were upset and wanted to know what the new special session was about. And neither Berger nor Moore were willing to tell them initially. They simply said, well, we've got some other issues. Uh, We'll talk about it after we have a Republican caucus meeting. And other than that, wait till the bill filing and then you might see what we want to do. So we didn't know till Wednesday evening as the seven o'clock bill filing deadline approached Uh, what they really had in mind. And it turned out what they had in mind was what we had somewhat guessed over the last few weeks was that there was a effort afoot to um, reduce incoming Governor uh, Roy Cooper's powers, uh, particularly appointment powers, uh, changing some stuff with the Board of Elections. um, And that's what we've been working on for the last uh, couple days over there at the legislature. So uh, what did the legislature do to, uh, re- related to Cooper first? Let's take that first before we get into some of these other, uh, other things. Uh, what, uh, what can we expect out of uh, a Cooper administration now that uh, we wouldn't have seen before? So the big thing with Cooper is that his cabinet appointments are now going to have to go through um, a Senate confirmation hearing, much the same um, as uh, President or elect Trump is dealing with now. Um, his cabinet appointments have to go through Senate confirmation. This is something that uh, the state constitution does, in fact, allow the Senate to do, but it's not something that's been done in, in many, many years. Uh, typically, the governor decides who they want to be on the cabinet, and that person gets to be on the cabinet. Uh, so we'll be looking for those confirmation hearings and what that might be like. It uh, Certainly nobody has any experience recently with what uh, that's going to look like and 
how much of a grilling these uh, appointees are going to get uh, probably won't happen until the legislature comes back in, in late January. So that's one, and that's one of the, the big ones. Um, the other major one is um, appointment powers in terms of exempt employees. These are uh, the number of employees in state government who serve at the pleasure of the governor. They can be hired or fired by the governor. Uh, they don't have the state personnel uh, civil service protections that sort of a lot of the rank and file state employees have that keep them uh, in their jobs regardless of which party's in power. So that number was at 400 under Bev Perdue up until 2012. At that time, the Republican legislator, legislature, as they knew McCrory was coming in, a fellow Republican, upped it first to 1,000 and then to 1,500. Pat McCrory is currently uh, designated, I think, about 1,400 total positions um, as exempt and uh, serving at his pleasure. The bill uh, that was passed uh, through the legislature uh, finally today takes that number back. Initially, they were talking about 300. They've upped it in the Senate to 425, so just slightly higher uh, than the appointment powers that uh, Bev Perdue and and some of her predecessors had uh, when they were in the governor's office. So that's one. Uh, There's also a change to the UNC system schools, boards of trustees. Uh, Historically uh, and currently, the the governor has, I think, two appointees to each school. All 17 have their own board of trustees. Uh, That would take that away from the governor. And instead, I think the head of the Senate and the head of the House uh, would each have uh, one additional appointment from what they already have on the uh, boards of trustees. Uh, and so that's that's the other one on that front. I think those are the major ones um, that impact uh, what Roy Cooper is going to be able to do once he gets into office. And we should say that uh, Governor McCrory has not yet signed that bill. Yeah, that's has House Bill 17. So as of Friday evening, and I just checked the website a few minutes ago to see if, uh, if that uh, signing had popped through one way or the other, and it had not yet. So um, I guess that's the question now is um, since Governor McCrory very quickly signed the elections bill, which we can talk about in a bit uh, earlier today, so that's already a law, um, whether he's planning to do the same thing with the appointments bill, um, which would be interesting for him to whether he signs it, because uh, this, we're talking about restricting the governor's appointments. Now, Governor McCrory sued the legislature not that long ago, uh, challenging some changes they'd made to his appointment powers. So uh, certainly he's going to uh, probably face some criticism that there's a, a little bit of hypocrisy afoot in him doing this to his uh, successor if he signs the bill. Uh, if he doesn't sign the bill, I haven't actually gamed out the um, possibilities if he uh, doesn't sign it and doesn't veto it versus if he vetoes it, um, what are the likelihood, what's the likelihood that A, the legislature comes back in time to override uh, because they probably wouldn't be able to do an override um, in January. That would be too long from the time period. Um, and the other question is, if it, under what circumstances could it become law without uh, McCrory's signature? Because uh, I can guarantee you that if somehow this bill is still in play on January 1st, um, Governor Cooper is going to be vetoing it probably within the first three minutes he holds the office. Will, what was Cooper's, uh, Governor-elect Cooper's reaction to this? Yeah, um, it's it's an interesting thing to think about. At his press conference on uh, Thursday morning, uh, Mark Binker, a reporter from WRL, asked him specifically about the, the cabinet appointment issues and if um, people had been already turning him down uh, for nods for those spots uh, because of, you know, fears over, you know, having to go through a harsh confirmation process or something like that. Cooper did not want to touch that question with a 10-foot pole. Um, and he also, you know, said pretty fairly, I think he would argue that, you know, it's still pretty early in the process. He hasn't really started, you know, picking his cabinet. But then, you know, 
at the national level, obviously, Trump has a lot of cabinet picks, cabinet picks already. And you've got to so. think he's got people lined up already just waiting yeah. to announce when yeah. it gets a slow news day. So, I know. Once. I was they, surprised they, we didn't get any this week, but I'm kind of glad we didn't because we wouldn't have had the bandwidth to cover it. They would have run into that that problem. Nobody's covering it because they're all in the legislature. But but that's an interesting thing to think about. Not only you know could there be scrutiny and pushback from the legislature, but that also this might even preemptively kind of narrow the candidate pool for him to to choose from, you know, people assuming that they will automatically not be approved if they are of a certain uh, political ideology. Yeah, and we were just writing, uh, just before this all happened, a roundup of everything Cooper could do and couldn't do. A lot of that's gone out the window yeah. because, uh, at least if assuming this bill does go through, because one of the major things he could do would be to, um, you know, have control complete control over the the agencies, like, for instance, uh, Department of Environmental Quality being able to uh, determine how regulation uh, of environmental regulation is done in the state. Now, uh, I suppose he may not be able to get through uh, somebody who's who the legislature thinks is going to be uh, too big of a fan of, uh, of regulation. So. Exactly. And on top of that, you would also have uh, fewer of those uh, kind of uh, political appointment positions that are exempt from the state personnel law to to fill in as well. Um, and the uh, the Republican response to that, their statement today, uh, was essentially that, well, uh, you know, we, we expanded these positions for McCrory because things were so bad in 2013 when he took power, but... It was something to, to fix state government, he needed the extra powers, which I think uh, right. how Chad Barefoot put it on the Senate. Right, today. and then he fixed it, so then the rules don't need to apply any longer, which is... Uh, I, I think there was a reporter from the Washington Post who tweeted that, you know, this would be like Obama saying that Trump is forced to keep his cabinet members because they had been doing such a good job. I don't know if that's an exact analogy or not. I haven't really looked into it. Yeah, I think that it's hard to see exactly what the person-to-person impact of this is all going to be. Uh, yeah. It's clear that there will be some uh, McCrory appointees who get to keep their job as, as, as a result of this, but it's hard to know who those people are, what they do, and, and how many of them they are that uh, w- would have otherwise potentially gotten kicked out by Cooper. I think he, his um, one of his transition folks is in a soon-to-be senior advisor, Ken Udy, had told me a couple weeks ago that they were uh, sort of evaluating all the uh, positions like that and had not really made a decision as to how many people they might keep, but certainly were, were looking at everybody individually and, and not just trying to wholesale kick everybody out the door. What did Cooper say about this? It, he uh, it seemed like he he was uh, restrained. Uh, didn't did you think he was? Uh, he, it seemed to me he was talk, trying to um, shift the conversation to talking about other things like the issues that he wants to deal with rather than um, going wholesale after the the process. Maybe he just thinks talking about the process is is not as appealing to people. I don't know. But yeah, at the beginning he was calling on the legislature to focus instead on you know classic kind of campaign trail things, repeal HB2, give teachers raises, and I think everyone knew that that was kind of a, a dead end that he was pursuing there. Yeah, yeah. when, he, um. when he, he sent out that that initial tweet in response, I was wondering if it was some kind of a scheduled tweet from during the election, because it sort of said, focus on HB2 and teacher raises. It was all the things he talked about during the campaign and not so much what we're... Yeah. Well, and then he kind of did, had a, a bit of a mic drop moment with his one-sentence statement that came out this afternoon after the legislature adjourned. It basically said to the effect of uh, the, the courts are going to have to once again clean up the legislature's mess. So it was uh, very clear that uh, his response to this, and I think he said as much in the press conference the other day, is he's going to sue them. Uh, so we're going to, before the governor is even in office, we're going to 
be set up for a court fight between him and the legislature. And does it seem like there's what? What would he sue them over? So there, I guess some of it would be arguing that certain powers he has he should have constitutionally. I certainly am not an expert in the state constitution, so I don't know um, exactly what specifically those would be. Uh, one th- aspect that I think they may be trying to push. Um, and it was kind of the groundwork was laid for this this week was the idea that the entire special session uh, was unconstitutional. And that was the argument that uh, state rep uh, Darren Jackson from Nightdale was making. And he lodged a formal complaint. And then Democrats um, sort of reiterated this complaint throughout the week at different committee meetings and uh, different floor sessions. Uh, basically, they believe the session is unconstitutional. And, and Jackson's argument in that, uh, it came back to how the session was called, was he argued that because the documents that uh, called the special session were actually dated Monday and the special session was called on Wednesday that the legislative leaders, Moore and Berger, um, had essentially gotten all the signatures from their caucus and stuck this uh, call to session in their back pocket and only decided later that they were going to bring it out. Now, under the Constitution, they're required to immediately call a special session once you've gotten three-fifths uh, of the chamber, uh, both chambers seeking the special session. They have responded to say that uh, the final signatures didn't come in until uh, Wednesday morning, so they were uh, in compliance with that provision. But um, that's something that could, could very easily get litigated. And if uh, Jackson's claim were to win in court, then that could theoretically throw out everything they did in the special session. And Will, you looked at this. It, it, they, so they were in a special session, so it would have been hard for them to immediately go into special session based on the, the signatures, right? How, how would that how would that work? What did you find out when you looked at this? I've been I've been interviewing some constitutional law professors and people who study the General Assembly for a living, and no one seems to be quite as confident as Darren Jackson is um, that this is all, you know, uh, obviously unconstitutional. So I, I think there is a very good possibility that there will be a lawsuit about this. And from from what I've been hearing, it's not at all open and shut. It's kind of a uh, an unexplored area of law. So we'll we'll see. And ob- obviously, I uh, I haven't talked to everybody in the world yet. <laughs> Maybe there's a, another person out there I still need to interview who has uh, who has knowledge that could uh, sway it one way or the other. So if that's you and you're listening to this, call us up. Let me know. <laughs> but, um, well, let's talk about the other. Uh, area where the legislature made big changes. I guess two other areas, election and courts, although they're both uh, all in one big bill. Uh, and the governor, Governor McCrory, did sign that. Yeah, bill. very quickly, like maybe even less than an hour after the final vote was taken at the legislature, which is unusual for him. I mean, he, he does sign stuff quickly some of the time, but um, to, sure, to do it that quickly. with HB2 is what Yeah, and that was even, you know, yeah, it took three or four hours with HB2. Um, but yeah, yeah so that's even faster. Yeah. And he so was out of town. He was in Charlotte. Yeah. So there was some question of like, you know, how he goes about signing it. Does he have to sign the original version that comes out of the legislature? Can he do it remotely? Can he use an auto signer or something? I have no idea what the answer to that is, but some people were, were wondering how he did this, uh, while, while, uh, at some other sort of event in Charlotte. Uh, but anyway, so Senate bill two is, uh, the bill that, that does all this. And it's, uh, the main thing about elections. Senate bill seven. House Bill 17 House is Bill the appointment Bill. Senate Bill, Bill 4, 4 is the, right. yes. Okay, got it. Yeah. So, yes, lots of uh, numbers and letters <laughs> to remember after a very, very long week. Uh, but anyway, so Senate Bill 4, uh, the main provision is on election boards. These are the 
people at both the county and the state level who decide uh, early voting hours, polling places, all the uh, the nitty gritty stuff that goes into running elections. Uh, that's currently um, under the control of the party that holds the governor's mansion. So for the last four years, uh, every county election board and the state board has had a Republican majority that was scheduled to flip to a Democratic majority with Roy Cooper's election, but now that's not going to happen. Um, instead, uh, they're combining the State Board of Elections with the Ethics Commission, which is interesting in and of itself, uh, but using the composition of the Ethics Commission, which is bipartisan in that uh, it's an equal number of Democrats and Republicans. And so in order to get anything done, uh, you have to have uh, somebody from the opposing party join with you on that. And the same sort of principle would apply to county boards of elections. Uh, the, the main objection to this, and I've heard this from several Democrats, uh, is this effectively neuters the uh, boards of elections because uh, a lot of times they do deadlock on partisan grounds. And we saw that a ton during the, uh, the hearings this year about uh, early voting schedules. Um, and when that happens, my understanding was that the issue then get kicked into the court system in some way or another. Uh, so what you may end up with is that uh, you get an issue about, you know, are we going to have early voting on Sundays? Um, and instead of a um, appointed board of election, either a county or state level, making that decision, they may very well deadlock along party lines, and then it gets kicked up to a judge um, to make the final decision. So uh, that was the concern, is that it may turn it in sort of the similar to the Federal Elections Commission as a body that doesn't really have all that much power just because it's not empowered to have the power, I guess. Uh, so that's the elections piece. The other pieces of this are... Um, changing the Supreme Court elections, which are some of the last, I think the last remaining um, statewide judicial elections that are nonpartisan uh, to a partisan thing. Uh, the argument behind that being you get more information about the candidates if they have their party labels next to them. Um, and some of that uh, has apparently been spurred on by this year's election results. Uh, this year's election you had Court of Appeals seats up. They were partisan, and Republicans won all of them. Uh, the court, Supreme Court was not partisan, and uh, Mike Morgan, the Democrat, won that. Um, and some of this uh, speculation is that uh, Republicans may have voted for him not knowing who on earth he was. Uh, so that's going to be changed in the future. Um, and the other piece to that is a change to the Court of Appeals powers. Um, this bill allows them to meet what is what's referred to as en banc, I believe is the term. It's Latin or something. I don't know much about that. Uh, but, French, uh, I think. French, uh, who knows? It's <laughs> like I say, it's it's been a long week. My brain is, it's amazing it's even functional at all at this point. Uh, but anyway, so what that actually means in practice is that right now, if you go to the Court of Appeals, uh, they have 15 judges, but they meet in three judge panels. Uh, you would get a decision from the three judge panel, and if you didn't like their decision, you could appeal it to the state Supreme Court, but the state Supreme Court could say yes or no whether they want to hear the case or not. It's like the U.S. Supreme Court in, in that regard. This would give you, I, I think, almost an automatic right of appeal uh, to a 15-judge uh, configuration of the Court of Appeals. So all the judges, and the majority of them are currently Republican, which is worth noting, um, before you'd then go to the uh, Supreme Court uh, or not go to the Supreme Court at all. Um, so that's a, a change that uh, should be interesting and, and could potentially help uh, the legislature um, if they are challenged over some form of law or another. It goes to the Court of Appeals, um, and they're facing an appeal to the Supreme Court, which now has a Democratic majority. This would allow them to opt for 
the 15-member version of the Court of Appeals, which has a Republican majority, which might be more favorable to uh, something that the legislature did uh, that's under some sort of legal challenge. So uh, that's the other piece of that. Again, that has been signed by the governor. All of that is now law. The Court of Appeals, which, like you said, is Republican-controlled, gets a fair amount of uh, new authority under this because they, they have that, but they also uh, get to uh, get a role in constitutional challenges. Before, apparently, uh, the somebody who's making a constitutional challenge to the law at Superior Court, then uh, at trial court, then goes straight up to the Supreme Court. It's like an expedited review. But now there's going to be a middle stop at the Court of Appeals. So um, I think there was a story we had today indicated that there was some worry that this would uh, delay things uh, for constitutional questions. Uh, there was also some, some thought by others that uh, really that, the, uh, the, the, that this would not be a huge problem. Um, but it uh, definitely gives a bigger role for the Court of Appeals and, um, and, and takes some power away from the, the Supreme Court that now has uh, democratic control. Um, there was a lot of talk going into this session, maybe the legislature will do some kind of court packing and add, add members to the Supreme Court. So yeah, going into this week, uh, we had all the rumors that they were going to add seats to the state state Supreme Court to offset uh, Mike Morgan, the Democrats, uh, win in that. That, of course, turned out not to be the case. And uh, we in the media, as well as Democrats, were getting a lot of criticism from the Republicans saying that, uh, you know, there was the speculation about this, but there was no basis in fact, uh, although they had never f- uh, up until this week fully denied that that was something that uh, they planned to do. Um, in a sense, I almost feel like the court packing rumors sort of diverted attention from speculating about the things that they actually end up doing. Because there were rumors uh, about the idea of reducing some of the governor's powers and making some changes to election boards that were floating around uh, and never were uh, necessarily confirmed one way or the other. Um, So in a sense, uh, up until this week, most of the protests, the Democrats were very fired up about the idea of court packing. And that turned out to be the one thing that they didn't do, uh, seemingly, compared to the, the long list of things that actually did happen this week. The court packing uh, sort of got a lot of people outraged and on the left, and um, they didn't, I don't know if it helped them at all, but they did end up getting a fair amount of uh, people down to the General Assembly protesting. Um, so what did that look like? Yeah, so they, I think they had a better turnout of protesters uh, after the uh, agenda for the second special session became apparent, uh, both uh, Thursday and Friday. Um there was probably a couple, few hundred people that packed um, the third floor of the legislative building. That's where the um, public galleries are, where people in the public can go see what's going on uh, in the House and Senate chambers. Um, so that was mostly led by uh, the NAACP and um, Progress North Carolina uh, that brought protesters in and uh, led chants. They waved signs. Uh, and there was quite a bit of uh, civil disobedience both days. I think we had a, around 17 arrests on Thursday and uh, 38 or 39, I think, was the total uh, at last count for Friday. Um, and people arrested doing a variety of things. Some of it was uh, they were making a disturbance, chanting within the chamber and disrupting the, the proceedings that way and then refusing to leave. Uh, some was uh, chanting that went on in the um, third floor of the legislature. Uh, and later was people who just weren't even chanting but declined to leave after uh, the police uh, demanded that uh, everyone who was uh, gathered on, on the third floor 
uh, leave the building. Uh, and there was also some folks who were arrested because they were uh, tapping on the glass of the chamber windows and doors um, saying, you know, let us into the people's house or, or something to that effect. Uh, so there was a lot of drama, a lot of tense moments between protesters um, and the, both the sergeant at arms staff uh, that uh, controls the flow of traffic up there and the, the General Assembly uh, police officers. So uh, certainly you can go to the News Observer website and see lots of videos of uh, all the uh, craziness. I, I got in the middle of it at one point where um, the chief of police said something to the fact that he had no problem with arresting press. He didn't do that today. Um, it at least went up with us and with the, the TV cameras that were up there, but it certainly made for a moment of where we were all wondering, oh, what's going to happen next? Are we going to get put in handcuffs too just because we're here? And uh, But that ended up not being the case, except for the NC Policy Watch reporter who declined to leave the gallery space where he was working uh, when they cleared the gallery. He was arrested uh, and, and released, um, and I understand his uh, group is uh, planning to fight those charges and try to get him dismissed. Well, I'm very glad uh, that uh, none of you got arrested. Yeah, uh, I hear the zip tie handcuffs are not very comfortable, so I'm, <laughs> I hope that I never have to be in them. I mean, you know, uh, we're, uh, we, we probably would bail you out, but, uh, yeah. you know. I mean, times are tight. Maybe they're just like, well, it's one fewer person we have to keep on the payroll. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so do you guys want to do headliner of the week? Do you have, uh, yeah, we could throw out a headline of the week into that or, uh, do we need to take a break first? Uh, Um, we, why don't we launch right into it? Yeah. All right. Let's launch right into it. Yeah. Someone can, you you can just hum Andy Curlis's, uh, headliner of the week (laughs) rap in your head. Yeah. Who, who, okay. I won't even try it. Uh, Will, uh, who is your headliner of the week? My headliner of the week is Skip Stam representative from apex this was his last hurrah in the legislature and he went out with a bang uh all of the the lobbyists who have been around were giddily tweeting about how oh you know one final lecture on the magna carta from (laughs) skip stab or you know talking about uh you know english common law in the 1700s and things like that um so he's always a hoot especially for the uh the lawyers in the crowd uh being a lawyer himself and uh, going into all sorts of historical things so uh i i think he enjoyed himself having <laughs> having one last uh, time to speak and uh, be involved in legislative process so skip sam well we will certainly miss uh his white papers that he sent out to he might still press. send them to us i have a feeling we'll still get those i was gonna say yeah. it may not be the end of them uh <laughs> so uh we'll uh, we'll look out for those uh uh all right, so Skip Stam uh, uh, on his way out, along with uh, uh, quite a few other uh, lawmakers who will remember fondly, uh, and maybe we'll still see in other capacities. Uh, Colin, who's your headliner of the week? I'm going to go with uh, Reverend William Barber from the NAACP. He, was, of course, was leading the protest that we were uh, just talking about this week, um, and, and really firing up the crowd. Uh, I mean, the, the protest, particularly on Friday, just went on and on, and part of that was that he was keeping the energy up of the protesters, telling them different techniques they could do and had all these different ideas. The thing with Barber is obviously he's been you know, in a prominent place in the, as sort of the, the protest leader for, for many years now since the Republicans took control. Uh, and there was some speculation that uh, now that we have a Democratic governor again, would Roy Cooper be sort of the leading voice in the Democratic Party? And I, I think to a large extent he will. Uh, but the question was whether that wouldn't mean that William Barber stops being quite such a powerful voice. Um, and I think that's definitely not going to change, uh, even with a, a Democratic governor that 
even if, if Pat McCrory is not the, the scapegoat for liberals who want to protest, that uh, he's going to keep them coming to the legislature uh, no matter what's uh, on the agenda that they're concerned about. All right, uh, Representative Skip Stam and the Reverend William Barber, um, probably both uh, uh, multiple-time uh, headliner contenders, contenders, I bet. I'll have to consult the news research division about uh, ex- <laughs> our headliners uh, of the week in the past, but uh, both people who we, uh, we talk about a lot. Uh, I'm going to go with Representative Stam since uh, uh, Reverend Barber will have uh, more chances. Uh, we're going to hear a lot from him coming down the road, I bet, uh, and uh, Representative Stam. Uh, is on his uh, way out of the legislature. Uh, so Representative Skip Stam, Paul Skip Stam, is our headliner of the week. Uh, thanks for listening to Domecast. We'll be na- back next week with uh, uh, possibly a little uh, longer uh, Domecast, although um, we're going to be on a, a skeleton crew during the two holiday weeks, so we'll have to figure out uh, whether we'll be able to to record one of these every, every week during the holidays and if there's any news that even merits... Uh, us doing it, but we'll have I a lot. Have a feeling there might be some lawsuits for us to talk about. <laughs> yeah. yes. We'll see and how quickly cabinet appointments finals. maybe. At, at the yeah, very yeah. least, we're going to have transition. Uh, yes, we've got uh, uh, inauguration coming up on January first, so we'll have lots to talk about. That won't be a problem. All right. Well, for uh, Colin Campbell and Will Doran, I'm Jordan Schrader. Thanks for listening to Domecast. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the daily print edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.